Welcome to the Aerospace Advantage podcast. I'm your host, John Slickbaum. Here on the Aerospace Advantage, we speak with leaders in the DOD, industry, and other subject matter experts who explore the intersection of strategy, operational concepts, technology, and policy when it comes to air and space power. So if you like learning about aerospace power, you are in the right place. To our regular listeners, welcome back. And if it's your first time here, thank you so much for joining us. As a reminder, if you like what you're hearing today, do us a favor and follow our show. Please give us a like and leave a comment so that we can keep charting the trajectories that matter to you most. So today we have two drone experts to talk about the really creative and large-scale employment of drones in Ukraine and what lessons learned we can draw on that conflict or from that conflict for the U.S. and Taiwan in the Indo-Pacific. And also, since we have these two experts here, we are going to break down and discuss the recent midair that happened with an RPA over the Black Sea. So we have Sam Bendet, who is a drone expert in the Russia Studies program at the Center for Naval Analysis. So Sam, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. We, we are so glad to have you here and, and really looking forward to the discussion. We also have Mitchell's own Caitlin Lee, who leads the Center for UAV and Autonomy Studies. So Caitlin, welcome back to the show. Good to be here, Slick. All right, so let's kick this thing off. Let's first talk about why the U.S. is so interested in pursuing new drone technology to meet its national security objectives. Thanks for the question, Slick. So I'll start off and just set the stage for why the U.S. cares about drones. In the history of U.S. military post-World War II, the U.S. hasn't always cared about drones, but we've seen that they have tremendous value in the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan for high-value targeting and long lawyer time. But we've also come to this realization that they have three fundamental traits that make them important in war for deterrence and war fighting. And those are the ability to reduce costs in blood, treasure, and human capital. So blood, if you think about taking the air crew completely out of the picture. So treasure drones have the potential to be much lower cost than manned aircraft. It's not always the case, but I think, and we'll talk more about this in Ukraine, we've certainly seen they can be very low cost and even made out of cardboard. And then political capital. A lot easier to shoot down a drone or fly a drone into some contested airspace than it is to shoot down a manned aircraft or fly a manned aircraft in contested airspace. So these drones, any kind of drone, has some basic advantages over other types of weapon systems. And we've really seen those advantages come to light in the Ukraine war. And this is not lost on U.S. forces that are watching Ukraine closely, using it as this proving ground to think about how military innovation works, not just from the top down, from the senior leader level, but also from the bottom up and how people are innovating with this technology on the battlefield. And so Ukraine is this not only this rich sort of proving ground for thinking about how this technology works, but it's also this impetus for actually getting this innovation going in our own country and starting to think how we might apply those lessons learned for the major national security challenges we face, both in Europe, but also in the Indo-Pacific. And I think these are less, this whole idea of learning from the Ukraine experience making the most of drone technology has really taken hold across the military services. I've been doing a lot of work on the Air Force aspect of this. The Air Force is pursuing a next generation of autonomous drones. Secretary Kendall recently said the Air Force wants to build about a thousand of these drones to offset Air Force capability and capacity shortfalls. And so this is the Air Force trying to capitalize on what we've seen from the drone experience in Ukraine. And that's what we really want to talk about today is what can we learn from Ukraine as we look to the Indo-Pacific and remaining challenges in Europe as well. 
it's an incredible first response to the first question. You're, you're really hitting on a lot of important things. And there's obviously a need there. And turning to the conflict in Ukraine, we're focusing on so many things where this technology is impacting us. And one of the things you've alluded to, and, and as an Air Force, retired Air Force Lieutenant Colonel, one of the things I'm always like, we can't call them drones. They're RPAs. But now we're talking about many things beyond the traditional RPA, remotely piloted aircraft, to really, as you mentioned, things that are not that sophisticated. They literally could be almost something that like one of our kids might play with. So I want to bring Sam in here and and see if you can set the stage and tell us a bit about the types of the drones that Russia and Ukraine have been using in this conflict. Yeah, thanks so much. Completely agree with Caitlin's points. Ukraine is a really unique battle space right now with so many technologies getting tested, getting evaluated, getting used both from the military through official channels and organically through the help of volunteers and the soldiers themselves. So Ukraine really is a Ukraine battlefield is a bifurcation of military technologies developed by the country's military industrial complexes. For example, for Russians, it's using the Forpost and the Orion mid-range drones using Orlan 10, Aileron 3, Zala, and a range of other drones for intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance. These are military-developed, military-procured, and fielded drones. But there's also an absolutely unprecedented use of commercial drone technologies, Chinese-made DJI and Autel quadcopters, that have become absolutely indispensable in combat, that were really procured by the volunteers, by the soldiers, and utilized at the very tactical level, oftentimes in spite of and despite the official concepts and tactics that exist. And Ukraine was first to get there was first really organize its military volunteers, its soldiers to facilitate the flow of these technologies to the front. Russians are trying to copy Ukrainian principles. Um, there are lots of questions right now that exist with the with respect to fielding of commercial technologies such as these DJI drones in combined arms formations. What is the place for these drones? How are they going to be used? Because most of the concepts and tactics on the Russian side, for example, deal with military-grade drones and the inclusion of these drones into the company platoon and brigade formations. And so, once again, there are lots of military drones which are used by both sides. Ukraine, of course, is famous for using imported technologies like Turkish Bayraktar combat drones, as well as Polish and domestically manufactured military drones. But there's also completely unprecedented use of commercial technologies. And the real question is, how is that going to impact the militaries around the world, and especially U.S. military, that is observing how both sides are using and building and fielding these commercial, simple, do-it-yourself type of technologies that have become so pivotal and so effective at the tactical level in Ukraine. Yeah, Sam, this is a really an eye-opening moment for somebody like myself that studies this, but hearing you as an expert talking about this mix of new, old, commercial, and military-grade, it's the proliferation is just... When you say down to the platoon level, you just go, holy cow. I mean, this this stuff is out there and it's all over the battle space. So can you both tell us a bit about how these drones are being employed in Ukraine? So when it comes to commercial technologies, such as DJI drones, Autel drones, or drones that are put together from parts that people can acquire at various online marketplaces like AliExpress, especially the FPV drones, the racing drones that have become 
probably the biggest pacing threat for both sides in Ukraine because they can carry a warhead and destroy an actual tank. The real issue is the fact that a drone that costs just several thousand dollars, sometimes several hundred dollars, especially the FPV type drones, they can cost less than a thousand dollars if assembled from commercial components, can go after and destroy a military system worth hundreds of thousands, perhaps millions of dollars. And numerous videos on the internet, on Twitter, TikTok, of FPV drones destroying tanks, armored vehicles, missile systems, going after military formations, going after soldiers on the ground. This is really the eye-opening experience. Obviously, the use of military-grade drones is just as important, extending the intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance for both sides up to 100 or maybe 200 kilometers. The use of loading munitions, such as Russia's use of Iranian drones, the Shahed 136, 131s, and the Ukrainian use of various commercial um, Chinese-made technologies to extend their reach into the Russian territories, like using Mugin-5 uh, Chinese-made drone, for example. These are, these are drones that can target at a significant distance from launch site, right? But these tactical uh, commercial technologies is really what I'm trying to concentrate on right now in our ongoing research. Because again, the use of this technology at this scale is unprecedented. The inclusion of not just the military, but also the civilians into the war is also at a completely unprecedented scale. One of the Russian commentators actually remarked that this is not just a war of the militaries. This is also a war of volunteers that have their own manufacturing facilities, supply chains, and delivery and acquisition pipelines to get these drones to uh, both sides. And so tactical drones are used for ISR, they're used for combat missions. They're used for psychological operations. They're used for art artillery and tank spotting operations. They're used for aerial ramming. They're used for an aerial combat. They're used for counter UAS and EW operations where smaller, cheaper commercial technologies are launched before more expensive systems are launched to see how they behave, to determine if there's an EW presence, electronic warfare presence. And so all of this really adds up to um, a very interesting multi-level use of UAVs where heavier systems are used at certain distances while tactical commercial technologies are used really at arm's reach, basically extending the ISR and combat capability by about five or seven miles for soldiers on the ground. Yeah, Sam, I just want to hop in here really quickly. I got to witness firsthand is these FPV drones, this first-person video drone. And where I saw it was actually just at an airport. It was kind of like a, a little fly-in get-together. And this group was out there with what kind of looked like Oculus goggles. And they had to like sit down because it was so disorienting. They were like professional drone racers. But just for the audience to to visualize it's it's something that will fit in the size of your hands maybe maybe this a little bit bigger than a than a softball or smaller than a football kind of that size but these drones with 1080p so high quality video going right into the goggles giving the the flyer a first person video but you said the word quickly that they were, they were designed for racing these things are so fast, literally like 200 miles an hour, that you, you can barely hear them. And when you do hear them from the Doppler effect, they're out of your line of sight when they're past you 
it's they're so hard to see and i can't even imagine weaponizing something that you know even with if it was just like a grenade size warhead massive lethality and then i just quickly want to mention something that that you said was this like layered effect where i can send a very cheap commercial grade drone into an area and if it all of a sudden falls out of the sky and now i can't fly it i go well i'm not going to send my expensive stuff in there they've got some sort of ew going on that's going to blank my ability to control my drone here so the barrier of entry is very low for a very sophisticated use of, and layered effect of, of these drones. And if you're a soldier on the ground and you just barely hear something whiz by and go, what the hell was that? And boom, something blows up. It's just incredible. And I, I love how you're describing for the audience. So thank you for that. What's what's also important to mention is you actually said something also very important and the low barrier to entry. Flying commercial DJI copters doesn't take a lot of training. In fact, people can be trained in just a couple of days. Those type of drones, along with FPV, FPV drones, are deemed expendable, completely expendable, just like regular bullets. Uh, FPV drones take a little more training because of the way they're piloted. And so there is now, for example, a big call across the Russian volunteer networks for assistance to train FPV pilots so that the Russian pilots can actually use these drones against Ukrainians. And Ukrainians already have that sort of training in the pipeline. And the biggest issue with these drones is that despite their small size, they can actually carry a significant warhead that can really damage and destroy an entire tank. Again, the cost to, to target ratio here is absolutely enormous. Less than $1,000 for an FPV drone and possibly several million dollars for a tank or an armored vehicle that gets destroyed. Yeah, and just to build on this low barrier to entry conversation, so what I think what we are clearly seeing, what I hear from both of you, is that there, Ukraine has just proved to be this enormous opportunity to experiment with all kinds of commercial technologies to have civilians participate more to, in the fight because they can be trained very quickly. And also what I've observed, if we think about how drones have been employed, is this sort of constant evolution and this measure countermeasure fight that continues to evolve over time. And that's something that I'm watching particularly closely because I think that could have some real salience for the kinds of challenges the U.S. could face in the Indo-Pacific. And so to pull on that thread a little bit, if you think about the beginning of the conflict, we saw it was all about the TB2, the Turkish drone that was imported to Ukraine. And Ukraine had, I think, maybe around 50 of these. You hear very little about that now. The reporting is that Russia finally figured this out with their electronic warfare and was able to really take those out of the fight. Then you saw the Shaheds, the Iranian drones come in to the Russian side and be very effective at flying very fast and low and skirting right under those Ukrainian air defenses. And, and, and these other drones that fly very fast also being able to do that. So it's been this evolution of that. How do you employ the drone and then how do you counter the drone? And as time goes on, what I'm curious to really see is the kind of one drone countermeasures that are developed, both kinetic and non-kinetic, because to Sam's point earlier, it really stinks to spend an S-300 munition on a $10,000 drone. Um, so what kind of kinetic and non-kinetic countermeasures are coming? I think that has huge relevance to U.S. forces. And the other place is thinking about the autonomy. I am interested and in watching closely and be interested, actually, Sam, in your thoughts on how the autonomy is evolving in Ukraine. Are we starting to see these drones talk to each other at all? Like, are they becoming less reliant on human operators in any way? Because I think that's another place that could really have some implications for U.S. forces. I think that's a great question, and this is something that I think a lot of researchers, analysts, pundits, and end users also wondered since yes. the start of the war. 
I think right now, most of these systems are still remotely piloted. In fact, when we talk about autonomy, I almost have to make this caveat that when, for example, the Russian media or the Russian military academia, Russian experts talk about autonomy, they really are talking about just remotely piloted systems because no one really has a fully autonomous drone out there. There are probably a lot of experiments taking place right now in Ukraine, certainly in Russia. Prior to the war, Russian military invested heavily in developing all kinds of systems that could potentially work autonomously or in a semi-autonomous fashion. This concerns UAVs, unmanned ground vehicles, unmanned maritime systems. But right now, at least looking at the Russian side, almost everything that's flying is, of course, remotely piloted, especially when it comes to this commercial technology. What the Russians are doing right now is they're looking very carefully what Ukraine is doing. And again, Ukraine is really setting the tone right now when it comes to the introduction inclusion and the sort of organic integration of these commercial technologies such as DJI, Altel, and other types of drones and FPV drones. That's not to say that the Russians don't have any type of innovation on their own, but again, Ukraine is setting the tone here. And we haven't seen yet any truly autonomous system. When we talk about Ukraine, for example, launching swarms or groups of drones, for, for example, Russian military, these terms are often interchangeable. When they talk about a swarm, they really are discussing a group of drones that's piloted by one or several operators. These are not drones that are flying independently, communicating with the members of the swarm, communicating back to the operator and creating this common operational picture. These are, again, remotely piloted systems. But Ukrainians have gotten very adept at flying groups of drones in different types of missions against Russian forces. One such mission was described on Russian telegram channels, which took place at night, and several Ukrainian drones flew in a group. One of them was actually lit up, so it made itself visible and seen for the Russian defenders who shot at the drone, exposing their position, and the rest of the drones in that group flying in silent mode then dropped munitions on that unit, completely destroying it. So that's one, for example, type of a group mission that is utilized extensively. But as far as autonomy is concerned, we have not seen it on the Russian side. Ukrainian military has made claims that autonomy for drones and UAVs will probably make itself known this year, considering how the war is going, how long it's going, and considering the necessity for Ukrainians to launch counterattacks against Russian forces in the Donbass and other parts of Ukraine. So I think I'll stop here right now. Again, there's a lot of questions asked about what autonomy means for the Russian military, but we're not necessarily seeing actual autonomy at play or in action quite yet. Yeah, this is absolutely fascinating to think about what is taking place and such a great overview from both of you on, on what we're seeing in Ukraine. But now the question is, what should we as the U.S. be taking away from this? So, Caitlin, can you start unpacking some of that for us? I think one of the first lessons is this idea that Sam mentioned of operating drones and numbers together and creating this like targeting complexity for the adversary. And so you can think about those drones operating in groups as protoswarms that are starting to get at this ability to impose costs on the adversary by sort of overwhelming the adversary, complicating their decision calculus, confusing their targeting because they're not quite sure. One drone's lighting up, so they shoot at that, but then it exposes their position. But you could also imagine a swarm where 10 of the drones are decoys and two of them have munitions on them and one's an ISR payload. Like which 
it's very complicated for targeting. So I think the first lesson from Ukraine is mass matters in the air, like getting after the swarm concept could be a really effective way to go on the offensive and make gains. Another one is mass on the ground, like the need to stockpile, the need to come up with large numbers of drones potentially that are relatively expendable and low cost, but also lots of munitions and and the ability to have that supply chain. And I think as we look to the Indo-Pacific, that's a real challenge in terms of where do we posture if we're going to buy large numbers of low-cost drones, where do we actually posture them? Same thing for munition stockpiles, because China does have such an extensive air and missile threat to our basing options in the region. I think another lesson is the vulnerability of fixed bases to both drones and other types of munitions. We've seen Ukraine, both through sabotage and the use of drones, target specifically target Russian air bases. And so as we look to the Indo-Pacific, okay, I think we're all coming around to this, that like large main operating bases are not a great place to employ from. And I think Ukraine enforced that. I think you also see the real importance of command and control. And so what I think has been so brilliant and fascinating about the Ukrainian use of drones in particular is their ability to link those drones into a combined arms system. And so to be able to have the ISR drone that's talking to the artillery or, and so I think having that command and control and the employment of Starlink, of course, facilitating that has been really interesting to see. And so as we look to the Indo-Pacific, How do we get after command and control? Even if our drones are operating relatively autonomously, we're still going to want to be able to have them reach back, pulse information to us. And so how do you maintain robust command and control in a very highly contested electronic warfare environment? I think that's another sort of thing to consider and take away from the Ukraine experience. But I also think there are some things that do not apply necessarily from the Ukraine fight as we look to the Indo-Pacific. And so we talked a lot about these commercial drones and how they are having impact on the battle space. And then the more military grade drones that are being used in a layered way to go after longer range targets. But what you don't see in Ukraine is any really long range drones. The U.S. has not sent any like Great Eagle or Reaper drones there. Bayraktar, even the Bayraktar, I think, Sam, jump in here. It's like 100 nautical mile range, something like that. Yeah, right now, apparently Bayraktars are relegated more to ISR missions where their advanced optics are used to observe the target and communicate information to other drones, which are uh, which have a shorter range and can actually strike the target. I, I want to jump in for a second just to second what you said earlier as far as long-range drones. Russians are using their Shahed-136 quite effectively with respect to launching cheap platforms in large numbers against Ukraine. And even if 90% of them are shut down, and most often a lot of these are actually shut down almost entirely, it really only takes one of them to make it through and cause significant amount of damage. Russians are also trying to fly their loading munitions, their Landsats and their Kubes in combination with ISR drones like Orlan 10 or Zastava, where an ISR drone observes and highlights the target for the loading munition. And Russians are now starting to use their Landsat 3 loading munition a lot more and in greater numbers as well. So there's a lot of learning here taking place. Give the give and the take. One side takes advantage. The other side learns and tries to apply its own technology as well. But I think Shahed's and the use of these loading munitions that can fly up to, I think, a thousand kilometers, at least in their original form, at least the drones that probably targeted Saudi and UAE targets several years ago, these are the ones that China is probably looking at as well. There was even a rumor recently that China may have copied a Shahed-136 to create its own sort of domestic variant that it can launch in large numbers. 
Yeah, I just want to foot stomp that like there's this range issue. So if we look at Ukraine, Sam just talked about the Shaheds are an exception. They can go longer ranges. Ukraine, Ukraine gets that long range matters too, by the way. I know they're trying to build their own organic long range UAV. And so I think the the thing to take away from this is that Ukraine hasn't had access to very long range drones, but certainly understands the value that they can have, in ter- especially if you're trying to take back territory. I think range becomes a really big factor in the Indo-Pacific where you inherently have to deal with these longer ranges. For the U.S., you're basically looking at basing options in Japan or the Philippines. And if you want to have targeting effects in the Taiwan Strait area, you're going to need to have a pretty good range on these drones to do that. Something It's going to take you, it's four or 500 nautical miles just to get from Japan to the Strait. And then you've got to add time to actually do something while you're there. So we've done some work at Mitchell. We think you're looking at something like at least a 1500 nautical mile range to have any kind of effect in a China fight. And then some of the other things that I, I'm not sure are so applicable in Ukraine. And when we look at the Indo-Pacific is Ukraine has done masterfully with the support of U.S. and allies is sort of go on the defense and be able to sustain fighting. And that's one thing drones do really well. They're relatively cheap. They give you that ability to sustain fighting. You can keep throwing them in the fight forever. And so that's been really important, but it's not necessarily a winning strategy. And so when we look to the Indo-Pacific, I think what the U.S. needs to be thinking about is a posture that allows you to go on the offensive a little bit with longer range drones to actually go after the kind of military grade targets you need to hit to blunt and halt an invasion force. So a DJI quadcopter or some kind of octocopter drone with a mortar on it, um, I'm sorry, insufficient for the China fight. Like you're going to need more military grade kind of capability in terms of range and payload to actually have effects in that theater. So some of the commercial drones, particularly smaller ones, may just not be as applicable to that fight. On the other hand, the U.S. military has a wonderful way of going after the most exquisite weapon system. That's something that we really actually need to avoid. And so there's this very delicate balance that needs to be struck between drawing lessons from Ukraine, thinking about how we integrate low-cost commercial technology, particularly in the sensor realm, onto our drones, but then also balancing that against range, speed, and payload requirements that are going to be more demanding in the Indo-Pacific theater. Sam, I want to get your take on this question as well. I think what's interesting here is that we're dealing with both sides in the China-Taiwan struggle, which have very sophisticated militaries, they have sophisticated defense industrial systems, and have had the benefit this entire time of observing the Ukraine conflict from afar without getting directly involved, in the sense that they are looking specifically at the lessons of using uncrewed aerial systems, drones, both military and commercial, and trying to adjust. We've had news that have come out recently that Taiwan updated its combat and ISR drone lineup. China obviously is looking very carefully what Russia is and isn't doing and using in Ukraine. I've already mentioned that China may have copied a Shahed-136 design as a cheap way to overwhelm Taiwanese defenses, but Caitlin is right. We're looking at significant distances. We're looking at very robust air defenses. And the counter-UAS, counter-UAV concept in general, has emerged as a complementary and very important element in the war in Ukraine because both sides not only have to launch UAVs, but also have to simultaneously defend against them. And it is a lot more difficult to defend against a small commercial drone once it actually sneaks past the air defenses or kinetic defenses or even electronic warfare defenses that are set up. For example, EW is a very important element in the counter UAS across Ukraine, but EW and air defense systems 
do not actually create this solid shield around targets or around specific area. They can only cover so much, even if they're overlapping with several systems working simultaneously. And so there are always gaps that an enterprising attacking site can actually exploit. And we're seeing that in Ukraine all the time with videos of small commercial drones sneaking up on top of Russian soldiers, for example, and dropping munitions right on top of them. That's not going to happen in the war in Taiwan. Uh, because in that particular conflict, there's a maritime boundary that has to be crossed. And of course, there's a very significant U.S. presence and U.S. military assistance that will also be at play in this war. And I think the evolution of UAV technologies in Ukraine is certainly informing how combat is developing right now. But it isn't, as Caitlin indicated, it isn't going to be copy-paste type of approach to a conflict between technologically sophisticated adversaries like Taiwan and China, who've had the benefit of developing their technologies with either a domestic impetus or international assistance. It's just such an obvious, not only tactical, but operational problem to solve. I really want to switch gears a little bit and ask you this question, because this U.S.-China conflict, that as we talk about, obviously might not be as short as we would like when we think about executing warfare. And it has me really think about the logistics and sustainment implications. So, Caitlin, what should we be worried about here? Yeah, of course, we have logistics and sustainment issues sort of with, with all of our weapon systems when we think about the Indo-Pacific in particular, because we have more limited facing options. China does have this sophisticated integrated air defense system and long range missiles that can hold many of our facing locations at risk. I think maybe a lesson learned from Ukraine is the importance of having good logistics networks and being able to get, and so far it seems like we have been able to supply Ukraine without getting those supply lines targeted. That could be a more difficult challenge. And as Sam said, a fight between two very sophisticated adversaries that will almost certainly have open season on each other's logistics networks. And so I think it will be a real challenge to resupply both the drones and posture the drones and other technologies. I think what's kind of a, a good opportunity for the United States is that the Air Force and the other services are looking at building new drones. And this is an opportunity to think about designing them from the beginning so that they can deal with some of these logistics challenges. So for example, one good option might be to get off of long runways. If you can design a drone, and we have lots of examples from Ukraine that's launched from a rail or rocket launched or can launch off a dirt road. Those are all good ways to create more options for how you get off of those runways that could be real targets for Chinese missile attacks. So that would be one important thing to do. And, and I think drones can play a really big role in the Air Force's agile combat employment concept, which is designed to do exactly this, which is disperse off of the main operating base. Sam, obviously the logistics challenge in Europe is different because it's overland, but what are the lessons learned from this Europe fight for the Indo-Pacific regarding logistics and sustainment for drones? I think it's very important for us to distinguish between logistics for the military-grade drones, which will probably be utilized in significant numbers in any U.S.-China or China-Taiwan contest, and logistics for commercial-type technologies, which are so prevalent right now in Ukraine. And right now, it is the logistics supply chains for these commercial drones that really make the headlines, which are discussed at length on Telegram channels because of the use of procurement of these technologies at online and commercial marketplaces. Despite DJI's ban on selling its drones officially in Russia and Ukraine, people can still acquire them practically everywhere or just build FPV type of racing drones on their own from parts which are readily commercially available. 
I think the pipelines and logistics for military drones are obviously more difficult to interdict because it's the national governments and the national militaries which are in control of those uh, pipeline and uh, pipelines and those logistics, especially on the Russian side, as as the Russian government is trying to assure the society and the military that the domestic defense industry can in fact manufacture enough military grade drones for the war effort and will continue to do so as long as the war continues. For the Indo-Pacific, I do have to also um, note for the listeners, I'm not an expert in Indo-PACOM or in the, in the Pacific issues, but for me, looking at the map, at least, the maritime boundary and the logistics bases and the presence of allies in the Indo-Pacific region, which can aid United States in this contest, are extremely important because a lot of the key elements for this possible clash with China will actually come from U.S. allies located in the region. I guess I'll stop here and turn it over to you. You guys touched on it before, but the U.S. is interested in deploying autonomous drones to meet its national security challenges. So, Sam, are we seeing autonomous drones in Ukraine? I know you, you did mention a little bit before, and what can we learn from that experience? So as, as as we mentioned earlier, we're not necessarily seeing fully autonomous drones. We're not seeing drones that can operate on their own throughout their mission. There are some drones which are advertised by, for example, the Russians as having limited autonomy, as having being able to locate the target on their own or or possibly fly to target and return back to base on their own if necessary, if the signal is lost. But full autonomy right now is elusive in the war. And full autonomy is probably elusive because Ukrainian battle space is such a complicated environment with so many countermeasures trying to interfere and influence how different types of military assets and systems are operating. Full autonomy in conditions of very powerful electronic warfare, counter UAV systems, for example, in conditions of other types of countermeasures present on the battlefield with each side going after each other's assets, is probably going to be fairly difficult. I have to mention, though, that Russians are trying, at least publicly, to advertise that they have that capacity. And a couple of weeks ago, one of the Russian officials who is currently facilitating volunteer effort in the Donbass, Dmitry Rogozin, advertised that his units are going to test marker on manned ground vehicle in autonomous and semi-autonomous modes where these vehicles are supposed to travel to a designated spot, perform a set of missions on their own without necessarily interfering with or facilitated by the operator. These are just claims. The marker UGV was tested autonomously prior to the war, but in a relatively controlled environment where several vehicles traveled on their own in a forested environment. I doubt that that particular test involved fires or EW countermeasures or any type of efforts that try to interfere with how this drone or how this military vehicle is going to really perform in Ukraine with Ukrainians trying to go after it and destroy it. And so I think this is the real crux of this autonomy problem. For example, Russians have claimed that they are trying to test numerous systems in autonomous modes, but their actual testing probably does not approximate the actual battlefield conditions in Ukraine, which are very, very complicated. Russians tried to test a combat UGV earlier in Syria in 2018. The results of those tests were very public because the tests actually failed to deliver the needed results. And Russians decided that, for example, unmanned ground vehicles in combat are probably better off as stationary elements or as guard elements or as elements that are really not let out of the operator sites in any way, shape, and form. 
And so numerous claims about military autonomy will have to really be tested in Ukraine, but it is difficult to really operate or let the system perform on its own, again, in, in conditions of so many countermeasures applied against that system by the defending side. Yeah, Caitlin, I, I want to have you hop in. Sam just described the autonomous drones and what's going on in Ukraine and Russia. So how does what's going on there stack up with what the United States Air Force is doing? I think the Air Force is taking what they are, they've referred to as a crawl, walk, run approach to autonomy. So starting out by tethering their autonomous UAVs very closely to their manned fighter aircraft, and then trying to evolve from there to increase the autonomy over time. I think one of the potential risks of this approach is that adversaries may not be so inclined to tightly tether their autonomous systems to human control right off the bat. Sam gave several examples of Russia trying to operate semi-autonomous and autonomous vehicles and failing publicly, but we know that China is also trying to build autonomous weapon systems as well. They refer to this concept of intelligentized swarms, and we know they have said publicly that they have done some testing with these swarm ideas in forested areas, similar to what Sam mentioned. Um, and that if you can effectively bring this mass to bear and have these swarms operating independently, they can create these new opportunities to achieve success on the battlefield. So it's it's something that I think China's watching closely, that China's looking at pursuing. And the U.S. is taking a more cautious approach with some good reason. There's a lot of concern about, you know, as Sam mentioned, any kind of high-end warfare is going to have a very contested battle space. And so, of course, there's concerns about friendly fire and hitting the wrong targets. And so there's there's need to take some caution there. But it's just not clear that the adversary, particularly China, will be proceeding with the same level of caution. And so that's just something to consider as the U.S. develops its own drone programs. Is there a need for sort of two tracks, like one where you're developing the autonomy alongside the manned aircraft and you're looking for the goodness that you get out of that human-machine teaming? And then maybe a separate track where you are looking more at that independent swarm, that you let it loose in a kill box, a place where there's nothing good going on here, and let it go do its thing and optimize to hit a pre-selected set of targets. There could be some value in that approach, because I think that's the direction China's most likely headed. One of the things here, we've talked a lot about the kind of drones that we need. So this is a big question here, but who's going to build them? Who are the big players in drone development and export? What are the implications of proliferation of all of these drones? And where is the U.S. in this when it comes to exporting the drone technology? With respect to the war in Ukraine, Russians are looking at United States and China as the leading drone exporters around the world. But they used to compare themselves against, for example, the achievements of the United States and the Chinese defense industries. Now they're comparing themselves against the achievements of Turkey because obviously Turkey really burst into the space just recently and has already basically assured that it is a global supplier of multiple types of combat UAVs around the world to dozens of countries, different types of models. Iran is also very important exporter of this technology. It has really tested a lot of their drones in Russia and apparently also assured a lot of customers based on their performance, based on the performance of their drones in Ukraine. But there are also other countries which can probably build and assemble these UAVs. Obviously, Taiwan has its own 
very sophisticated drone industry. Other nations uh, using U.S. long-range, mid-range drones for various types of missions, including maritime combat. The United States remains the standard by which others are judged right now, and especially looking at the development of drone technology in Russia, they are seeing what the United States has and hasn't done over the past couple of years. But Ukraine is also stepping forward, and Caitlin mentioned earlier that Ukraine is trying to acquire and build a long-range drone to go after Russian military bases. Late last year, they actually announced that they're almost finishing testing for a combat drone with a range of a thousand kilometers. Obviously, this is either a domestic development or it may be a reverse engineering of some parts of the Iranian drones that were shut down. This may be something that was developed jointly with Ukrainian allies in Poland or elsewhere. But a lot of nations are looking at the evolution of combat drone technology as seen not just in Ukraine, but also Nagorno-Karabakh war, combat in Syria and the Middle East as really an emphasis on cheap, expendable technologies, which could be acquired in large numbers if necessary. And so acquiring several dozen Shahed-like 136 drones doesn't break the bank even for a country that doesn't have a significant military budget, but it can potentially extend the military capacity of that country in a possible conflict with its own adversaries where these drones can strike at hundreds of kilometers. And so the picture is a lot less clear than it was, let's say, 10 years ago, when it was really United States, Israel, and China in the lead. Now there are other nations which are stepping forward, like Turkey, like Iran. Russia obviously isn't sleeping on its laurels and is also working on its own drone industry and possibly other countries. But again, there are only so many leaders in this industry. And the top places belong to United States, Israel, and China because of decades of investment, decades of testing and evaluation, and decades of partnerships with other countries that were also acquiring and using their technologies. Yeah, Sam. And just to build on what Sam said, you know, 10 years ago, it was the US, right? And so how is it that these other countries have been able to take the lead? I think it's a combination of the low the proliferation of this very low cost easy to use commercial technology that just makes it so easy to develop these drones then also the us falling behind because of policies so one thing that's been problematic is the missile technology control regime which doesn't ban the export of large drones but it makes it very difficult to do and so there's an assumption of denial unless there's a decision actively made to export larger drones like the reaper and so in the void of the U.S. not exporting these drones very much, other countries have stepped in. It's just how the market works. And so um, the U.S. has fallen behind. And another issue that's kept the U.S. from staying in the lead is FAA flight restrictions. It's not easy to fly and test drones in U.S. airspace. And so these are challenges that the U.S. faces, but they're, they're policy challenges that can be addressed for the U.S. To, to make progress. And it's really important to make progress. Drone production is really important to the U.S. And being able to export the drones is really important because if we want to get its production at scale, at the scale that we need, at the scale that we see is so important in the Ukraine fight, then we need to be able to export these drones to our allies and partners just so that they can use the drones and also so we can get the production numbers we need for it to make sense to open drone production lines. 
Yeah, it's really tough to hear and worrisome that it's not a supply chain issue or a technology issue, but it's a policy or a bureaucratic type of issue that's just so worrisome. And given that the Department of Defense has publicly stated concerns about China building up forces to seize Taiwan, what can we do in the short term to feel this capability? I think it's going to be really important to just get the drones that we have into the field as quickly as possible and into operational units where operators can actually develop new TTPs, experiment with these drones. What we've seen in Ukraine, as Sam talked about, is this amazing ability for just individuals to come in and learn how to use the drones effectively very quickly in the battlefield. That is one way the U.S. needs to draw on the lessons of Ukraine, is to just get whatever drones we can out there into the field. Places like Guam, where we have great training range space and availability of airspace, just put some drones out there that can can be experimented with, with AI brains in them. When we have these drones today, there are things like Ghostbat, Valkyrie, Blue Force Technologies has a drone. And these are drones that can operate with AI brains in them and just be experimented with by operators. And I think we need to do that right now. It's good that the Air Force has a systematic plan to develop these new combat collaborative aircraft that will fly with fighters. But I think In the much shorter term, we just need to get whatever capability we can out into operational squadrons, even if it's not a perfect solution. We need to do that now, because I think based on the intelligence that we have, China will be ready very soon to achieve its military objectives against Taiwan. Whether they'll do that, we don't know, but we need to put the forces in place to deter that now. I agree with Caitlin. The United States has an unprecedented amount of capabilities, which can be fielded either to day or tomorrow. And so all of these capabilities have to come into play here. As far as policies, as far as what DOD is doing, there's a lot of emphasis right now across the DOD on the potential conflict with China. So there's certainly a lot of people and a lot of departments and efforts looking at how technology used in Ukraine can influence what United States should and shouldn't do against China and obviously trying to analyze how China is looking at the conflict in Ukraine and trying to get the most useful elements for its own potential clash with the United States. But UAVs are going to play a very important role no matter what. Obviously, the the whole point of using UAVs is to take pilots out of dangerous situation, not necessarily to replace the pilots in many missions because a lot of UAVs um, are not quite as large or as capable as a manned aircraft and can't sometimes cannot carry the same armored complement, but at the same time, they are fielded in a place of a piloted mission. And so their loss shouldn't necessarily be felt the same way as the loss of experienced pilots or sophisticated aircraft. And the more UAVs are used in a potential conflict, the more impetus is going to be placed on the defending side to try and defend itself against the incoming UAVs, which are flying different missions, ISR, combat, or anything else. I agree with Caitlin. There's a lot United States can do right now. And the United States has an unprecedented amount of resources at its disposal around the world, and especially in the Indo-Pacific region that it can lean upon. Sam, you, you did team me up for a perfect segue to get your breakdown for you and Caitlin on what happened with the Su-27 and, and the Reaper over the Black Sea. So I'll let you both hop in and just give us a little bit of debrief. When it comes to the Russian analysis of how UAVs are supposed to operate in battle space, their main byline is that UAVs are supposed to, or autonomous or military autonomous systems, military robotic systems, are supposed to make missions more effective and safeguard military lives, meaning they are there in place of a soldier in a dangerous situation, and they're supposed to take a military personnel 
out of a dangerous situation while possibly safeguarding civilians or avoiding unnecessary civilian casualties and damages. A sophisticated drone flying an ISR mission that gets shut down or damaged is not the same as a as a piloted ISR aircraft with a crew on board that gets shut down. What is the level of escalation here? How do we manage the escalation from this conflict? Do we even raise this to the same level as a clash between two piloted aircraft in a um in a combat zone or even in an in international waters? These are the questions that a lot of scholars and analysts are going to be looking at right now as the drone use is going to grow and proliferate. And as more and more countries are going to use different types of military UAVs for different types of missions across their border into their adversary border or in conflict or even in peacetime, are we going to view the downing of these drones or the destruction of these drones by other countries the same way as we view the uh, the possible downing of, of a crewed aircraft. These are very important questions we have to ask today. And Russians have indicated that just recently that all American drones flying near their borders are contributing to the war effort and are therefore potentially legitimate target for the Russian military. So have they set a precedent or have they just done what some countries thought they should be doing all along? And just to build on what Sam said, I don't think this mid-air collision is the last time we'll see this kind of kind of thing at all. And I think it will become more common as these as drones proliferate and are used to do routine surveillance near contested areas or sovereign territory. So look for more of these kinds of incidents in the future, but look for there to be a relatively muted response. I think if you look at the last 10 years or so when there's been drones shot down before, the U.S. and Russia, for that matter, haven't really reacted too much to it. So if you think about the probably the most famous incident was Iran shooting down the Global Hawk in 2019. The U.S. considered reacting to it, but ultimately didn't. The drones encourage restraint in that context. The important thing for the U.S. to do, though, is not to be intimidated by these kind of tactics. So if a drone is shot down or it's harassed to the point that it's launched into the Black Sea, the U.S. needs to just continue asserting its right to international airspace. That's really the key. Caitlin, as always, awesome to chat with you. Thanks so much for being here on the Aerospace Advantage. Thanks, Lick. Bye. Sam, thanks so much for being here today. Incredible insight from you. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. Bye, guys. With that, I'd like to extend a big thank you to our guests for joining in today's discussion. I'd also like to extend a big thank you to our listeners for your continued support and for tuning in to today's show. If you like what you've heard today, don't forget to hit that like button and follow or subscribe to the Aerospace Advantage. You can also leave a comment to let us know what you think about our show or areas you think we should explore further. As always, you can join in on the conversation by following the Mitchell Institute on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, or LinkedIn, and you can always find us at mitchellaerospacepower.org. Thanks again for joining us and we'll see you next time. Stay safe and check six.